All right, Isaiah chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 2. The Bible says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. Now as we dig into this lesson tonight, I want to remind you we're covering the first 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah. We're mainly going to simply be reading the text, the Word of God, and following our outline. But to give you an idea of what the content of these first 12 chapters are, they are prophecies to the conscience of the Jews. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I mean that God is dealing with them about their spiritual condition. More broadly, we could divide these 12 chapters in this way. In chapters 1 to 5, God is weeping. His heart is broken over wayward Israel. But we come to chapter 6, I like this, and we learn that God is reigning. Nothing that is happening on earth has disrupted His throne in heaven. Then when we get to chapters 7 through 12, we're going to see that God is working. And I'm glad to report that God is always working. So looking at those first five chapters, we see God is weeping over Israel's sinful condition. And in chapter 1, we find Israel's defilement being highlighted. We've already read verses 2 through 4. And they serve as a word of rebuke against Israel. How that they have rejected their God. How that the ox knows his owner, the donkey knows his owner. But Israel doth not know. His God's people doth not consider. So God comes out of the gate, shoots over the bow, and immediately discloses the reason for these prophecies. We see a word of rebuke in verses 2 through 4. Verse 13, we begin to see a word of rejection. God says He's how He's going to treat their religious worship. He says in verse 13, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. He says, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, he says, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Hey, God doesn't want to behold a dirty life. I'm thankful for the grace of God. I'm thankful for the mercy of God. But if you think for one moment that you can live any way you want, it doesn't affect your relationship with God. I'm sorry you've been deceived. There's a uh, theological word for that belief system called antinomianism. The idea that grace makes us gross. But listen, grace doesn't make us gross. Grace makes us godly. So God says, I'm not going to deal with you anymore until you deal with your sin. Then in verses 18 through 20, we see a word of reasoning. Man, I'm glad we've got a reasonable God. He's not reasonable by man's intellect and man's standard, but by heaven's economy, He desires to reason with sinful, broken man. He says in verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. God says you've got a choice before you. You're either going to get right or you're going to go wrong. One of the two. Now, I believe when we get born again, we are eternally saved. Uh, I believe we are everlastingly secured, sealed by the Spirit of God under the day of redemption. But in regards to the path of our life, whether we live in favor or failure, I think much of that depends on our willingness to live in obedience to God. And God, He doesn't throw them away. He says, come to me. Reason with me. We'll work this thing out. Man, I'm glad to report there's nothing broken in your life that Calvary cannot fix. So we see a word of reasoning. And then verses 24 to 27, we find a word of restoration. The Bible says this, Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. He's talking, of course, of his own enemies, but he's talking of Israel's enemies, those that had gathered around to oppress them. He says, I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross. And of Israel, he says, I will take away all thy ten, and I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. 
Afterward, thou shalt be called the city of righteousness. Elsewhere in the Bible, Zion is called the harlot city, the unclean city, the wicked city. But he says, when I'm done with you at the end of the tribulation, after you've been through the furnace of affliction, after you've seen me glorified return in all of my power and majesty, and after the whole nation turns and looks upon him whom they pierced, believes on him unto righteousness, and a nation is born in a day, they'll not be filthy anymore. Jerusalem will not be filthy anymore. It'll be the city of righteousness, the faithful city. He says, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's talking about the tribulation. And he's saying it's through those judgment fires that God will finally get Israel's attention. They'll turn from their orthodoxy. They'll turn, many of them, from their secularism. And they'll turn to the Savior who loves them and bought them. So in chapter number one, we see Israel's defilement. Chapter number two, we see Israel's deliverance. One of the things I love about the Word of God is the way that in the Old Testament prophecies there would be this seamless transition between the immediate context and, and problems and issues of the day. And then all of a sudden you'd find the prophets speaking of things that just soared beyond that into a still future day whenever God will reign in righteousness. And this is one of the hallmarks of Isaiah's prophecy. Chapter number 2 deals with this idea and it begins in verse 1 with a millennial promise. Now what do we mean by that? Well, a promise that will be fulfilled during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He says it shall come to pass in the last days. And that's not an elastic term. That's speaking of the days when God wraps up his dealings with this broken world and its sin and unrighteousness. It's talking about the tribulation. It's talking about the day of the Lord. It's talking about when Christ returns in power and in glory. It says in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, talking about Christ reigning on the throne of David during the millennial reign. He shall judge among the nations, verse 4, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Hey, hallelujah, there's coming a day that God's going to set all of this right. There's coming a day uh, that the shady and clandestine powers that move nations, uh, that control elections, that uh, control the workings and dealings of mankind, the God of this world will no longer pull the levers, uh, but the God of the universe will sit enthroned and crowned in Jerusalem, and He will rule and reign in righteousness and in judgment. So even in the midst of this uh, rebuke that God has been giving them, He casts their eyes forward to a day when He's going to fulfill all of these promises. But how's that going to happen? Well, verse number 10, he deals with tribulation judgment. What's Israel going to have to go through? Well, verse 10 says this, Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty. He's talking about that day when Christ pierces the eastern sky, when He sets His foot upon the Mount of Olives and splits it in two, that when that day comes, that men will tremble and fear. It says in verse 11, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughty of man shall be bowed down and the Lord alone I like this man I might preach a little tonight and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day for the day of the Lord of hosts that is not a generic term that is a term encompassing the end of the tribulation period sometimes even the tribulation period itself Uh, that which happens post rapture during the seven year tribulation period and with a special focus on that day when Christ returns visibly uh, to this world the Bible says the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. You know, one of the things that bothers me about the wicked men of this world, they they're getting away with it and they know they are and they know, you know, that they are and they don't care. It doesn't bother them. Uh, their proud looks that they boasted not only against lowly man, but against holy God will one day be quieted and cast down. Verse 19 sums it up and says this, They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. So here we have this 
future vision of millennial or a millennial righteousness, millennial promise, and tribulation judgment. But as is often the case, no sooner has the prophet transcended to these glorious visions than he finds himself brought low again by Israel's iniquity. And we find in chapter number 3, he moves from uh, Israel's deliverance to talking about a sooner day whenever Israel's desolation will be brought about. Now, this will have some fulfillment, of course, one day in the tribulation period. But there is a more immediate fulfillment that will one day, very soon from where Isaiah is standing, be brought upon Israel as a people. Of course, the Assyrians brought about judgment upon the northern ten tribes and then the Babylonians upon the southern uh, two tribes. And it's those two tribes that are in view here in chapter number 3. God says to get their attention, to bring them low, to break their will, that there's going to be several things he's going to do. Look with me at verse number 1 of chapter 3. The first thing is their security will be removed. He says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, meaning a measure or a reservoir or a uh, abundance that they have. God's going to remove that. Not only that, he says, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of 50, not of 50,000, but even a man that has the integrity to stand above 50 will be removed. And the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. God says this, all those things you enjoy in society, those things you rest in, those things you revel in. He says, if I'm going to get your attention, I'm going to have to take all those things away. wonder how much in my life God's had to take to get my attention. Oh, my. So he says their security is removed. Verse number four, he talks about how their stability is removed. He says, I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. And the people shall be oppressed, every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient. We're living in those days and the base against the honorable. God says your societal stability will crumble and will break down such that there'll be no respect, there'll be no regard, there'll be no consistency and safety in the stability and status quo of society. Down in verse number 8, he begins to talk about how their joy would be removed. He says in verse 8, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of His glory. Verse 12, he says, As for my people, children of their oppressors, and women rule over them, O my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy paths. In other words, Isaiah says, you're on this path of destruction, and destruction is certainly where it will lead. And he looks to a day, a day, by the way, that Jeremiah would live to see, and with tears in his eyes and a broken heart, and Holy Ghost pen in hand, he would pin down the book of Lamentations as he wept over the solitary city, the ruined and rubbled place, uh, where once there had been joy and excitement and beauty and glory, but now because of sin it has been destroyed. Their joy would be removed. You want a miserable life, man, live in sin. The devil will make sure you have a miserable life. So their joy is removed. And then down in verse 16 and 17, we see their beauty is removed. He says, Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go. I've seen some of them down at the shopping mall. Amen. (laughs) Making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will discover their secret parts. I encourage you to read the whole chapter, but jump down to verse 24 and notice where it ends. He says, and it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink. And instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth. And burning instead of beauty. Thy men shall fall by the sword and thy mighty in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn. And she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. Hey, that's where sin leads you. I know they don't show you that in the commercials, (laughs) but that's where sin will lead you. So we see Israel's desolation. But once again, we find the prophet looking beyond this immediate moment of torment and trouble, looking to a day when God's going to set everything right. Is there not a lesson there for us? Uh, Listen, we can't be blind to the suffering of this world. God left us here in it, not to be of it, but to be in it. 
Uh, But we can't get our focus too much on that or we'll despair. And in the prophet's deliverance here, his message, we find even an example of that because chapter 4 deals with Israel's deliverer. He says in verse number 2, and we know who that deliverer is. Here's what he's called in verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord. We have even New Testament language about this. When uh, in the New Testament, John chapter number 15, uh, Christ says, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. He is the branch. He is the source. He is the, 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 uh, the root of all of God's plan and all of God's peace. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel, And I'd encourage you to take note of that phrase, escaped of Israel. It's a theme in the book of Isaiah and the Bible at large, that there'll be a remnant that will be left at the end of God's judgment of Israel. But he speaks of his majesty. One day Jesus is going to set all of this right. One day he's going to rule in righteousness and holiness and in beauty and in joy. And Israel would look forward to the day, uh, not when they in their own strength would be delivered, but when they in the Savior would be delivered. He speaks of His majesty. Verse 3, He speaks of His mercy. He says, It shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, meaning at the end of the tribulation, at the end of that judgment, and he that remaineth in Jerusalem, this is what it says, shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. One of these days he's going to cleanse Israel as a people, as a nation. That's what your Bible means when it says that a nation would be born in a day. And I listen, I'm not criticizing those that take note of the reinstitution, reinstating of the state of Israel in 1948. Certainly there's a lot of Bible prophecy could not be fulfilled without that. When the Bible talks about a nation being born in a day, it's not talking about a treaty and it's not talking about the nation in 1948. It's talking about at the end of the tribulation period when they'll be spiritually born again by looking on him whom they have pierced. He's going to clean and wash away their sins. And then we see his ministry, verses 5 and 6. He says, And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day. You say, preacher, why is that significant? It says in the shining of a flaming fire by night. If you were a Jew, it would be significant because in the Old Testament they were led through the wilderness by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It denoted the present, protective, personal presence of God to them as a people. And he says, one day they'll enjoy it again. For upon all the glory, he says, shall shall be a defense and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. It's going to matter a lot when we get a little later on in our lesson, but here's what he's saying. He's saying one of these days there's going to be a king on the throne. One of these days there's going to be mercy dispensed. And he's saying one of these days there'll be a tabernacle for them to dwell in and rejoice and take refuge in. We get a little further on, you'll learn not what that is, You'll learn who that is. So we see Israel's deliverer in chapter 4. In chapter number 5, we have a little bit longer, more sweeping of a saga that is set forth. And it shows us Israel's disappointment. Or maybe we could say this, God's disappointment with Israel as a people. There's three main sections to chapter number 5. The first is in verses 1 through 7, and it deals with the story of a vineyard. Listen to what it says in verse 1. It says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. Now let me pause and go ahead and skip ahead in my notes. We learn who that vineyard is, what that vineyard is in verse 7. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a crime. So this is a parable about Israel as a people, and they are likened to a vineyard. God says, I set it in order, I planted it, I did everything that could have been asked for it. But notice the end of verse 2. He says, And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Why would a vineyard bring forth wild grapes? Because an enemy has sowed tares in the midst of it. Because somehow in the process, it has become corrupt. Why are these grapes wild grapes? Are they sour grapes? Not necessarily. They're wild grapes in this sense. They can't be cultivated. They cannot be tied and trained to crawl up the trellis. They cannot be governed and they cannot be gleaned in a way that's beneficial. And that's what Israel became. They were God's vineyard, but sooner or later they they threw off God's authority 
and became wild grapes. So we see the vineyard corrupted in verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4, we see this vineyard condemned. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. God says this, it ain't because I messed up. It's not because I did anything wrong. I did everything right. But they chose to go wrong. You know, that's true of our lives too. No problem in my life can be blamed on God. It's blamed on me. He's done everything that could be asked. It's me that has gone astray. So what does God do? Well, we see in verses 5 through 7, we'll just read verses 5 and 6. We see this vineyard consumed. He says, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor dig, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. God says, I'm going to expose it to the elements. That's what he did when he turned the northern kingdom over to Assyria and the southern kingdom over to Babylon. I understand that he sent the Assyrians. I understand he sent the Babylons, but I also understand he didn't really have to send anyone. When he took his hedge of protection away from Israel, there were plenty of people just waiting in line to consume them. God says, I'll expose you to the elements. So we see the story of the vineyard in the first few verses. Beginning in verse number 8, we have almost a machine gun sound going forth. And it could be, it sounds like this. It sounds, whoa, 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 just over and over again. We find woe unto them, woe unto them, woe unto them, woe unto them. And God begins to pile crime upon crime, sin upon sin. That he is observing in the nation of Israel. By the way, God's never been unjust. Everything God's ever done, he's done in justice. And he begins to lay forth the crimes they had committed. Verse number 8, he uh, speaks woe to their defiance. He says, woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. And he's talking about them ignoring the uh, geographical and real estate boundaries that God had placed upon them, leaving no place for the gleaning for the strangers and buying and selling land irrespective of the boundaries that God had set. Verse 11, he pronounces woe to their drunkenness. He says, woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink that continue until night till wine inflame them. And by the way, drinking's always been a sin. Always been a sin. Uh, ever since Noah planted a vineyard, took that grapes and, and fermented it and got drunk and ruined his family. Uh, ever since man has had the technology uh, to ferment and, and the knowledge and understanding of how to do it, it's been a sin. It's still a sin today. It'll always be a sin. We see that clearly here in our text. Woe to their drunkenness. Verses 18 and 19, he pronounces woe to their disobedience. He says, woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. I heard the old man of God preach on that about your sin following you around. You think that you you think you're going to ride in the cart, but you wind up pulling the cart. Amen. He says that, say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw an eye and come that we may know it. Speaking of their disobedience. Verse 20, he pronounces woe on their self-deception. He says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. By the way, there's a lot that's called marketing today that'll be called sin on the day of judgment. Uh, the way that uh, people have co-opted language and sought to bend it and break it and call that which is unrighteous, righteous. They're going to give an account one day uh, for what they've done with truth and with error. And then verse 21, he pronounces woe to their delusions. He says, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Verses 22 and 23, he pronounces woe upon their defilement. Once again, woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. God lays forth the charges... And then in verse 25 at the end of the chapter, he passes sentence. What is that sentence? Well, we see the stirring up of the nations to come and to judge his people. Verse 25, we see the anger of his judgment. He says, therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people. And he hath stretched forth his hand against them and hath smitten them. And the hills did tremble and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is still, is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. 
Verse 26, we learn who the agents of His judgment are. He will lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. He goes on to identify the Assyrians as being the primary agent of His judgment. In verse 30, He describes the anguish of His judgment. He says, in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. Boy, I'll tell you this, chapter 5 ends pretty bleak. If I just, if all I had was Isaiah 1 through 5, I'd think he is mean, amen? I, it would leave me with nothing but despair. And you know, evidently it left Isaiah with despair. Evidently he was troubled at how wicked the world was, and I understand that. I get troubled at how wicked the world is. But God does something precious in chapter number 6. Here's what he does. He opens the windows of heaven, and he gives Isaiah a glimpse into another world. He allows him to transcend to a higher plane and see things not through the veil of this world's sorrow, but in the throne room of God's sovereignty. Here's what he learns. He learns God is weeping, but even in the midst of that weeping, he learns God is reigning. Chapter number 6 begins this way. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. In this chapter, Isaiah will learn three important truths. And the first is this, that God's throne is still strong. This begins by describing how a devoted king has been lost. Uzziah was a godly man. He was a perfect man. His life ended in some disgrace. He, of course, uh, forced himself into the priesthood and God smote him as a leper. And he spent the last of his days in a several house. His son Jotham reigning as regent over the throne. But all that considered, he was still a godly man who had done much for the kingdom and done much in the service of the Lord. And it appears as though Isaiah really loved Uzziah. Uzziah was the king of Isaiah's youth. And all of the peace and stability that the kingdom enjoyed could be attributed to Uzziah's righteous administration. But now, Uzziah has died. What's he going to do? And you know, we do the same thing. I mean, listen, I, I've been, I've, I've pastored through a few elections and every time one happens, you got half the world thinks it's all over and half the world thinks all of her problems are gone. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you, there ain't none of them interested in helping you. <laughs> and people get so wrapped up in hoping that this world's leaders will somehow save them. A devoted king had been lost. So here's what God reminds Isaiah of. There was a divine king that was still living. He says, I saw him. Where was he? Well, was he sitting, wringing his hands, popping nerve pills, calling for a lifeline? No, he was sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Uh, Well, what do we think about that? Well, I'll tell you what heaven thinks about it. Verse 2 says, above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, nervous, nervous, nervous. Is that what it says? No, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. He had to be reminded God was still on His throne. You know, even today, God's still on His throne. Hey, listen, His temple is still filled with smoke. Those seraphims still fly around His throne. Things that make you nervous don't make God nervous because He's God. He's still on his throne. He had to learn that God's throne is still strong. But then verses 5 and 7, he learned a second uh, important truth, that God's altar is still sanctifying. Verse 5, then said, I woe is me. He'd been saying woe to everybody else. Man, you get in the presence of God, you'll start saying woe is me. (laughs) Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. He had to be reminded God was still in the saving business. And though man was filthy, God's holy, and God's merciful, and he still had a plan for them. So he learned that God's altar, as wicked and filthy as Israel was, God was still in the saving business. And then verses 8 through 13, he learned that God's plan is still sound. He says, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then said, I hear am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? 
And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Isaiah is saying, Lord, your plans fell apart. Israel's wicked. They've rejected you. They're not listening to me. God, what are you doing? Everything's gone sideways. God says, no, everything ain't gone sideways. My plan is going along exactly like it's supposed to go. wonder how many times that faithfulness looks like failure to us. How many times we look at what God's doing and we think he's dropped the ball, but in fact, he's moving the needle. And we find in this passage that Isaiah, rejuvenated with this truth, he goes in to a fresh prophetic ministry. We find that God is weeping in the first five chapters. Chapter 6, we learn God is still reigning. And chapter 7 to chapter number 12, we learn that in fact God is working. God had not been idle. God had been working in the lives of His people. And we learn a few things about God's working. The first thing we see is God's plan. And this comprises chapter 7 and 8 and part of chapter number 9. God always has a plan. I don't always have a plan. Sometimes the plans I've got are bad plans. But God always has a perfect plan. And so even in the midst of Israel's disobedience, God was still working about His plan. Well, what was His plan? Chapter number 7, we learn that He had a plan to bring about a son. Chapter 7 begins with a pressing strain upon uh, the lower kingdom of Judah. It says in verse 1, It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Samaria, or of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliel, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. He was literally shaking like a leaf. Now, to give you a little bit of background, I don't have time to dig deep into it, but the Assyrian Empire is dominant, and it is not only dominant, it is rising. It is the preeminent threat in that part of the world. And Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, sometimes in their disobedience, they're called Ephraim in the Bible, Syria and Ephraim decided they would form a confederacy to withstand the Assyrian force. They tried to get Judah to get involved with this. Ahaz thought he'd be cute and clever. And instead of siding with Syria and Ephraim, whom he wasn't friends with, he went to Assyria and said, I'll side with you if you'll protect me from them. Now his uh, chickens have come home to roost. Now all of a sudden the cows have come home. And uh, these two kingdoms, Syria and Israel, they have now marched against him. He's now besieged, pinned up, shut up like a bird in a cage. And he doesn't know what he's going to do. In response to this, we find not only a pressing strain, but we find a prophetic son mentioned in verses 3 through 7. God sends Isaiah with a message to King Ahaz. And he tells him he wants him to bring his boy with him. Verse 3 says this, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz thou and Sheer Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tobiel. They wanted to dethrone uh, the Ahaz and replace him with someone that was more friendly to them. Verse 7, Thus saith the Lord, God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. He tells Isaiah, take your boy, share Jashub. I've never met anyone named that. Uh, But here's what it means. It means a remnant shall return. In other words, there was a message in the Son. There was a message in the name of the Son. What a beautiful type this is of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, Jesus, Joshua, His name means salvation is of Jehovah. The salvation of Jehovah. You know, even the name Isaiah means God is my salvation. He was trying to teach them not to fear their enemies, but to put faith in the Lord. Verse number 10, we find an interesting thing that happens. The Lord spake again unto Ahaz saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. That sounds real super spiritual. And I've seen people say some pretty foolish things trying to sound spiritual. 
Ahaz, he makes it sound like he just is, is too humble to ask God for a sign. But that really wasn't the case. Really, it was that he was faithless. He didn't believe the Lord was real. He didn't believe God would give him a sign. He didn't believe God would give him an answer. So the Lord speaks to him and says, ask me any sign that you want. And I will give it to you to show you that if you'll trust me, I'll deliver you from your enemies. And he's sounding real pious, said, oh, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, he could have said, Lord, destroy my enemies, and God would have done it. He could have said, Lord, destroy the Assyrians, and God would have done it. But because he didn't have the faith to take God at his word, we find that God gives his own sign. Verse number 13, he said, hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you. He says, you won't pick a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. But it wouldn't be a sign that would happen in the next year, hundred years or two hundred years. It'd be far future. He says, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. That's why I always get that honey butter at the Texas Roadhouse. Amen. Makes you more righteous. We find a prideful spirit, but in verses 13 through 15, we find a promised son. Israel could have had deliverance in that moment, but they didn't want deliverance. They didn't want to trust the Lord. They didn't want to depend on him. So God says, you'll not get deliverance right now. One day in the future, I'll send a son. A perfect son, a sinless son, a son born of a virgin. And he will set all these right. But right now, you'll have to pass through judgment. He says, butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, a lot of people have been confused about verse 16. But I hope I can untangle it for you. Verse 16 says this. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. Now, a lot of people have got confused because they think what Isaiah is saying is this promised son is going to come now. And before that child is old enough to know right from wrong, deliverance will come. But no, that's not what Isaiah is saying. He's saying one day there will be a child that is born. That is the promised son, the son of God, God with us, Emmanuel. And in the time it takes for that child to go from being born to knowing good from evil or right from wrong, in that short a space of time, God will in that short a space of a time or in that space of duration, God is going to deliver you even now from your enemies. We find here a present salvation. God says, I've not abandoned you. You have quit trusting me, but I have not quit protecting you. We see that God had a plan to bring about a son. But then there's a second thing. Verse number 8, God had a plan to bring about a sanctuary. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, we find another uh, another uh, interesting occurrence that has to do with one of Isaiah's sons. And evidently, he, he felt like Sher Jashub was just too easy and short to say. So instead, the Bible says in verse number one, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Name your kid that. Amen. He says, and I took unto me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. In other words, that he was writing this name down. And he says, I went unto the prophetess and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So we find here a prophecy regarding the prophet's family. I'll just make this passing statement. Everybody that serves the Lord, serves the Lord with their family. One way or another you do. Amen. And Isaiah's son had a large part in his ministry for no other reason than just this singular prophecy and the name that was given him. This is what it means. It means swift to the spoil, swift to the prey. God was saying this right now, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria are oppressing you. But he says, I'm going to whistle, I'm going to hiss towards Assyria. I'm going to get their attention. They're going to come this way. And before that child is old enough to know to cry my father and my mother, I'm going to destroy Israel and Syria. We see the prophet's family in the first four verses. But then, sadly, we see the people's folly in verses 5 to 8. 
The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly, of course the word Shiloh being Shiloh, referring to the Lord's peace, and rejoice in Rezin and Ramalia's son. Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels, and go over all his banks, and he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck, and the stretch out of his wings shall fill the breath of thy land, O Emmanuel. Because the people refused to trust God for deliverance, God turned them over to Assyria. And this is exactly as God prophesied would happen. It's exactly what happened. They said, we'll align with Assyria. We'll be friends with them. They won't bother us. You know, there's Christians say that. We'll be friends with the world and the world won't bother us. That's not true. Soon as they consume those that you've thrown under the bus, they'll turn their ire upon you. And that's what Assyria did. As soon as they had destroyed Israel and Syria, Assyria turned their attention to Judah. They invaded the land, took 46 fenced cities, and marched themselves all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. What would God's people do in response to this? Well, you'd think they'd trust the Lord, but they didn't. They instead turned their attention to Egypt. Uh, Hezekiah, who was king when that day came, tried to uh, establish a confederacy, an alliance with Egypt and Ethiopia, thinking they would come and save him. Of course, that did not happen. But uh, in, in, in prophetic uh, premonition or, 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 or prediction regarding this day, God warns His people in verse 12. He says, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Hey, there's a message there, amen. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself, and let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He shall be, and we have here a beautiful uh, prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall be for a sanctification. Sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. God sets forth the principle of faith. He says, you could quit trusting the world and trust in me. But he said, you refuse to. And because of that, when my son finally comes, you'll find that there'll be two types of people, those that'll bow the knee and those that will be broken upon him. In the New Testament Christ, speaking of Himself, described Himself as that stone of stumbling, that rock of offense. And He said this, that you'll either be broken upon Me or I will grind you to powder. One of the two. But He, even here, he, and of course He's quoting the prophet Isaiah in the New Testament when He says that God is trying to enforce the principle of faith to His people. And then in verse 16 through 20, we look beyond this day to a future day wrapped up in the Messiah whenever the purity of the faithful would be in view. Verse 16 says this, bind up the testimony. God's commanding Isaiah. He says, bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. He says, they're not going to listen. You go ahead and give them the message, but don't cry aloud in the street. Uh, Don't, hey, listen, a a, a smoking flax, he'll not quench. A bruised reed, he'll not break. Uh, Don't strive with them. Give them the message and then be done with it. And then bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And he says, I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. By the way, the book of Hebrews applies that prophetically to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is being dealt with here? He's saying to Isaiah, these people are not going to listen, but I will make sure there is a faithful remnant that comes out the other side of this affliction that will listen to me. And by the way, in many ways, that was fulfilled by those in Israel that received the testimony of the Messiah whenever He came. And that's why this is so closely connected to Him is because, hey, there was a lot of Jews that rejected Him. The Jews nailed Him to a cross. They lied about Him. They crucified Him. But there were some that believed on Him. There were some that received Him. In the midst, in between those periods of time, this would be the prevailing principle. Verse 19, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God, to the living and to the dead, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. God gives Israel a principle whereby to maintain their doctrinal purity through these dark years. Many of them did not. There were some, I think of Ananias there at the temple. I think of, uh, of, of uh, you know, the, the old man waiting at the temple for the consolation of Israel, or Anna, rather, at the temple. And I think of Simon at the temple. I think of these people that were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. There were some that remained faithful to the truth of God's Word. But it would not happen without much suffering. Verse 21 22 deals with the passing through the furnace. He says, they shall pass through it. 
hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Now, it's foundational that you understand what's at view here. He's talking about Israel in her exile, but even beyond her exile, after coming back to the land. And they were not plagued with idolatry then, but they were plagued with formalism. And you can read the closing post-exilic prophets of the Old Testament and hear what a dismal and depressed and despairing state Israel was in at that time. You can read the secular history of the time of the Maccabees whenever they were oppressed uh, by the Greeks and then afterwards by the Seleucidan Empire and then the Romans came into power. And all through that 400 years of silence and darkness, there was a faithful remnant that still trusted in the Lord. It wasn't all of the land, but there was a few that still trusted in the Lord. And that's where we come into verse number 1 of chapter number 9. So God is, here's what His plan was, to bring about a son, to bring about a sanctuary, to be a refuge for His people through this time of darkness and of silence. But then in verse number 1 of chapter 9, we see that God had a plan to bring about a sovereign. It says in verse number 1, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. In other words, after they return back to the land, there'll be darkness, there'll be despair, but it won't be like when they were in Babylon. Won't be like it was in the time of her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. You know, it's interesting when the uh, Assyrian uh, emperor marched down into towards Judah, he came through the north of the land. He had defeated the Israelites, he had defeated the Syrians, and he came through this very path down. He came down, the waters overflowed even to the neck, and he came to the gates of Jerusalem. And isn't God a gracious God? You know where, Je- you know, the Bible calls him Jesus of what? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, his primary ministry in the early years was in Galilee. Isn't it interesting that the people that tasted darkness first also saw the light first? And he says in verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. This, of course, is quoted in the New Testament, specifically applied to the ministry, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. So here's what Isaiah sees. He sees there is a coming light to the land of Israel. And, of course, that light came in the form of a babe, born of a virgin's womb and uh, raised in the city of Nazareth. There was a coming light, but then there was a coming leader. Verse number 6 says this. You're familiar with it. You could quote it probably. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I like verse 7 a little more even than verse 6. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah says, God, everything's fallen apart. God says, no, Isaiah, everything's fallen into place. Ah, my plan has not been nullified. But even in the midst of Israel's rejection of me, even in the midst of of their exile, even in the midst of the darkness in between their return and the Messiah, I'm working in the nation to bring about a son, my son, to bring about a sanctuary. He'll be a sanctuary to the people of Israel and to bring about a sovereign. One day he'll set upon a throne and he'll set everything right. We find God's plan in these chapters. The closing verses of chapter number 9 deal with Israel's perishing. Isaiah is once again brought back down to the immediate suffering in the land of Israel. And verse 8 says this, The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. And all the, that's what I see that, that happens when I preach sometimes. I'll preach at this one, and they'll take and scoop it up onto that one. <laughs> the Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. Now, I know that verse goes on, but I'm pausing there for a reason. He now draws his attention back to the northern kingdom of Israel And describes how that rather than turning to God as he chastens them, they bow their back to him. They refuse to listen 
And they say, we'll not, we'll rebuild, we'll set everything right again. He says, you won't because I'm working and dealing. And by the way, we can't resist against the chastening of the Lord. We can try to our own despair, but God always gets His. We see the foes of the land. Verse 13 through 16, we see the failure of Israel's leadership. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. God says, because your leaders have failed you, your people have failed you. And he says there's nothing to do except to destroy not just the people, but the leadership as well. He mentions the failure of the leadership. Verses 17 uh, to verse number 19, or we'll really, we'll read the beginning of verse 17. You'll see why I'm doing that in a second. Deal with the fury of the Lord. God's angry. He says in verse 17, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For every one is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For wickedness, verse 18, burneth as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest. And they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. God says, my anger is not going to abate towards you until you repent towards me. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, we see the fall of Israel. And he's speaking of the northern kingdom here who would fall to the Assyrian behemoth. He says in verse 1, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that right grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment, to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will ye do in the day of visitation, and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help? He says, you've turned away from me. Who are you going to run to? Nobody will help you. He says, and where will ye leave your glory? With Without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners and they shall fall under the slain. He says, you've turned away the only help you've got. What help can you hope for? Man, when we turn away the Lord, we're turning away the only help that we've got. I'm glad there's still help, though. We read only a portion of several verses. Because I want you to notice something that sounds as a bell throughout this entire passage. Because we see not only the fall of Israel, but we see even throughout all these pronunciations of judgment, the faithfulness of His mercy. Look at the end of verse 12, chapter 9. He says this, For all this His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. The end of verse 17, For all this His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. Verse 21, For all this His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10, verse 4, ends this way, For all this His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. People say, preacher, God was awful mean to Israel. He didn't give them no chances. He gave them every chance. Even in the midst of their rejection of Him, He's stretching out His hand saying, just take it. Your, your, your grip is slipping. Your fingers are falling. You're about to plunge to your death. Just take my hand. And Israel said, no, thank you. We'll just plunge to our death. We find Israel's uh, perishing in chapter number 9, chapter number 10. But you know... All of a sudden, evidently it was weighing on Isaiah's mind like it did on Habakkuk's mind. How could God be just in doing this? If Israel is wicked and God's judging them because they're wicked, how could he use the wicked Assyrians to judge Israel for her wickedness? So chapter 10, the remainder of it, is occupied with Assyria's punishment. Notice it with me. We'll just move through it very quickly. Verses 5 and 6, we see the commission of Assyria. The Bible says this, O Assyrian... The rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God had sent for the Assyrian. But notice how they carried out the task. Verse 7, we see their cruelty. Howbeit he, the Assyrian, he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. He didn't view himself as the rod of God's righteous judgment, but rather as a king in his own right, in his own strength. So in verse number 12, we see God's condemnation of Assyria. He says, Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. 
In high poetic language, verse 15, he describes the haughtiness of the king of Assyria. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up? Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness. And under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. He describes how he would deliver some even from Assyria. Verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped to the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote him, uh, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. In other words, he's saying you're dependent on him that's going to destroy you. But in that day, they'll depend upon me who has redeemed and delivered you. He says the remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. I like that. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. He says they'll not be destroyed utterly, but I will bring them back into land one day. Verses 24 through 27 and 33 and 34, we see Assyria's cutting off. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwelleth in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt for yet a very little while. And the indignation shall cease and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Verse 33 describes in apt language what happened that day outside of the gates of Jerusalem when the angel of the Lord smote 185,000 Assyrians. It says this, Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts shall lock the bow with terror and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down and the haughty shall be humbled and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. God, by His providential power, by His uh, eternal, immutable, divine, irresistible authority, destroyed 185,000 Assyrians in one fell swoop by divine judgment. We see Assyria's punishment in chapter number 10. Chapter number 11 again looks beyond this day and looks to a day when God will bring about a much sought-after concept that we hear a lot of talk about today. He'll bring about world peace. You know, we hear people talk about world peace, but we're not going to have world peace till the Prince of Peace rules the world. When that day comes, it's described here in chapter number 11. We find that the peace of God and world peace is manifest not in a program and not in a politician, but in a person. It says in verse 1, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, speaking, of course, of the father of David and Uh, Christ was, of course, the son of David and a descendant of David and of the tribe of Judah, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. I've got news for you, peace doesn't come from any of these programs. Peace doesn't come from prosperity. Peace doesn't come uh, from military power. Peace comes only from the Prince of Peace. We see peace manifest in a person. Then in verses 6 through 9, we see peace manifest in creation. It says this, During the millennial reign, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. Maybe your kid, maybe not my kid, I don't know. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and the, their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's much I wish I could say here, but you can read in 1 Corinthians 15 about how even creation itself groaneth and travaileth together even until now uh, for the day of the redemption of God's creation. And one of these days, hey, it's not just everything in the earth that will be set right. It's the earth that will be set right. 
We see peace manifest in creation, and then we see peace manifest in the nations. Hang on, we're rounding the finish line. Verses 10 through 12 says this, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Uh, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left, not only from Assyria, but from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You know, the rally cry of the Antichrist will be peace, 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 peace. But when they cry peace, peace, then sudden destruction cometh uh, as of a thief in the night. But then when the Prince of Peace reigns, he won't have to cry peace because he is peace. And people will look to him and the nations will enjoy their peace then. Chapter 12 ends... The way I like to end, it ends in joyful praise. Uh, Chapter number 12 figures for us Israel rejoicing in their Savior during the Millennial Kingdom. And we find that they're praising Him for two reasons. And there are two reasons we ought to praise Him too. Verses 1 through 3, He says, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise Thee. Thou wast angry with me. Thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, Assyria is my salvation. No. Behold, Egypt is my salvation. No. Behold, self is my salvation. No. But they'll have finally learned that God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. They praise Him for His grace. If there's nothing else you got to praise Him for, you ought to praise Him for His grace. They don't just praise Him for His grace, they praise Him for His greatness. Verses 4 through 6, He says, And in that day shall you say, Praise the Lord. Call upon His name. Declare His doings among the people. Make mention that His name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout. There's going to be a lot of Baptist nervous on that day. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. One day all the world will brag on Jesus. They'll come through the tribulation fires, this remnant will. They'll look upon Him whom they pierce. They'll be justified, regenerated, sanctified, washed, born again, birthed into the family of God and all throughout the millennial kingdom. They'll rejoice just like you and I do, drawing joy and, and rejoicing, drawing water out of the wells of our salvation. Isaiah, no doubt, when he came to chapter 12, he felt encouraged. And man, I feel encouraged when I think that God knows what He's doing.